Thanks, Benjamin. Good morning, everyone. Drop something here. Distinguish that. Ah! Um, first of all, I want to welcome those of you who are visiting. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. It's good to see everybody. If you were unable to be here on Wednesday night, you missed a, a really great time of worship. The Lord was very present. Austin shared a great message and really cool testimonies. A number of people were sharing what God's doing in their lives. It was really exciting. So we praise the Lord for that. A couple things I want to mention real quick. First of all, be praying. Tomorrow night is the women's outreach. So be praying for the Spirit of the Lord to work in the hearts of people, that more and more people will come to Christ. The Lord just encourages us. I've been praying for one of my neighbors for years, years. He's an atheist. It's nothing to do with the Lord. The other day, he invited me over for breakfast. Years ago, he had a young man working for him who moved away to Ohio, and that young man was there, and his wife and kids, and um, something glorious happened in this young man's life. He was asking me about what I do, and as soon as he found out I was a Christian, we talked for an hour about the Bible, about the Lord, so much so that my neighbor got up from his own table and just left. He didn't want to... But this morning, I drove by, and he was pulling out of the driveway, the young man of my neighbor, and he says, I'm on my way to church. And I said, oh, that's neat. I said, I said I'm just hoping we can get my neighbor who we stay with. He goes, me too. He goes, we just have to keep praying. So wow, look at how God works. So don't give up praying for the lost and praying that God will reach the people that we love. I want to mention something else. We have in the back at the Welcome Center invitations for our Christmas services. These are not coasters. These are not birdcage liners. They're actually designed for you to invite someone else. So we're excited about that, and I want you to continue to pray for the Lord to work in people's hearts. A lot of people don't go to church anymore, and it's not about going to church, but it's about introducing them to the Lord Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look in Mark chapter 15. If you're visiting with us, we have some extra Bibles. Please feel free to raise your hand. And we invite you just to explore Christianity with us. For some of you, you're not sure about all this. Maybe you've never been to a church where you learn right from the Bible, but hopefully this will be used of God to awaken you to the reality that Jesus is who he said he is. We believe he's Lord of all, and we trust that his word will be a blessing. So this morning, let me remind you that when you're reading the Bible, think about the fact that Especially these New Testament books were written to an audience with specific needs in mind. And so most people feel that Mark was writing to Roman Christians. It would be today like writing a letter to Syrian Christians. Christians in Syria are under tremendous persecution, or North Korean Christians. They're under tremendous persecution, so there's a great temptation to just go, this isn't worth it. I'm not going to identify myself with Christ. There's just too much at stake. I, I already could lose my life, so I'm just going to dial it back. So as Mark writes his letter, he's inviting these professing believers and seekers in Rome to recognize, yeah, to follow Christ is a challenge. And it's important to count the cost. It's important to understand what it will look like in their culture. And so as he describes the passion events, his burden is to, is to really challenge us to see what Jesus went through, to see that Christ was so unashamed to endure for us. And then he invites those who are reading to say, listen, 
Are you in or out? And so we've called this series Clarifying Jesus Committing to the Journey. For them to commit to the journey to say, hey, I'm a Christian and I'll follow Christ could very well cost them their lives. So it's a great challenge for us to go, where am I in this continuum? So a couple weeks ago, we saw, we saw Jesus telling us, eagerness is no substitute for watchfulness. Just because you think, oh, I'll identify with Christ. Be praying. Be praying. Watch and pray. And then last week, we saw Christ make his confession before Caiaphas. Now, I mentioned this, but Jesus, the night he was arrested, actually went through six different trials. He was bounced around to six different locations. We saw him before Caiaphas last week. Today, we're going to look at Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And, and remember that this became the early creed of the church. Remember Jesus, who made a bold confession before Pilate. So let's take a look at Jesus as he comes before Pilate. And what I want you to think about here is that Mark's going to particularly stress the shame. I mean, you could focus on the cross all day long, but Mark's going to really talk about the shame that Christ endured. And I think he intentionally highlights that because that's something that you and I have to think about. So we'll start in verse one. It says, and early in the morning, remember Jesus has been up all night. He's already been beaten and spit upon. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him up to Pilate. Matthew Henry said they could growl, bark, but they couldn't bite. They needed, the, the, the leaders needed to, to have Rome behind them to put Christ to death. And so they come before Pilate, and most, most of you have heard of Pontius Pilate. I want to say a couple things about him as a person. Because we know from extra-biblical literature a little bit more about Pilate. He was known as someone who was incredibly stubborn and cruel. It was really difficult to manage the Jews. If you were a Roman governor or any prefect or leader over them, they were just so difficult. And so Pilate, rather than try to be sort of flexible and work with them, knowing their religious preferences, he just would do really dumb things. Like at one point, he literally took a bunch of shields and put them in the, in the Jewish temple that had images on them. And the Jews went crazy. They totally freaked out over that. In fact, they marched 70 miles up to his home, like this massive riot of Jews saying, get those images out of our temple. And he said, go slaughter them. And as they went out to slaughter them, the Jews just got on their knees and said, here's our throats. Go ahead and slaughter us because we don't want images. So he finally was like, all right, he backed down on that. But then he did it again. He spent a ton of money to build this aqueduct, but the money he took from the Jewish temple. And again, the Jews had this big riot about it. So eventually, even in the time of Christ, he did something insane. Some Galilean Jews had come to worship. Now, we don't know the background, but the Gospel of Luke talks about this. They must have provoked him. And so he had them killed, but just to torment the Jews... He mixed their blood with the sacrifices that the Jews were offering. And so even the, this was on CNN, everybody was talking about it. They came to Jesus, did you hear about what Pilate did? How he mixed the blood? Jesus says, yeah, and unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. But it gives us kind of an idea of Pilate is just this nasty guy in the midst of these difficult people. So that, the reason I tell you that is it gives us a backdrop as to why he so quickly throws Jesus under the bus. 
because eventually he actually got kicked out of, of, of Judea for another one of these incidents historically where he just always seemed to provoke them. So Jesus comes before him and Pilate questions him, verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Notice, notice how Jesus answers. Remember to Caiaphas, he said, I am. This time he says, as you say. Like, what does that mean? Is that yes, no? It's almost like he's asking him a question. What do, what do you think? And the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. And Pilate was questioning him again, saying, you're not even going to make an answer? Do you see how many charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was astonished. That word astonished or amazed. Josephus used that word to describe the same amazement of Pilate at the Jews, that they would go, cut my throat, rather than compromise. And so Jesus' silence was just stunning. He's like, are you kidding me? We learned last week that that was intentional, that it was predicted that Christ, like a lamb, would be silent. But let's see what Pilate does. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, Mark introduces that as a backdrop. Verse 8 says, the multitude went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Now, it wasn't Pilate's desire to release Barabbas. It was his desire to please the Jews. So he actually has an idea that backfires. When we read the other Gospels, we find out that Pilate was really pretty sure that Jesus was innocent. The book of Matthew says that Pilate's wife even had a dream and in that dream, God said to her, don't mess with this guy, Jesus. He comes to him and says, don't hurt this innocent man. So Pilate really wants to release Jesus. He, doesn't want, he knows he's innocent. So he comes up with an idea. Since it is my custom to release somebody, I got a great idea. I think the crowds love Jesus. He does miracles. So I'm going to throw it out there and offer to the crowd to release Jesus. And they're going to go, yeah. I don't even have to listen to the leaders, but it backfires. So Pilate, verse 9, says, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up because of envy. So he's looking, he's going, Why are these, these leaders so eager to kill Jesus? Like, they got nothing on them. But I know he's really popular, so he looks right through it. And you know, it's funny, envy is a weird thing. Everybody knows what envy it is, right? It's when you start feeling angry or, or sad because someone else is successful. And think about these, not that we ever struggle with that, but if you ever, if you ever have that emotion, sinners still do. I still do. I'm, I mean, some of you know, you're churchgoers, so you probably don't. But sinners like me, I still, there's times that something great happens, I should be like, yeah. But I'm not, because we're sinners. And we need to recognize envy is, 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 is a, a breeding ground for wickedness and bitterness and, and lack of forgiveness. And so these Jewish leaders enjoyed popularity and, 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 and success and money from the people. And all of a sudden, Jesus is coming along and 
shaking them up and saying, don't listen to these guys, they're not teaching the word, and they're hypocrites. So they're angry and they're bitter and they want him out of the way. And so Pilate figures, if people love Jesus, these guys don't, they're just jealous. Let me throw, throw an idea out there. Surely they'll ask for Jesus. But it says, they shouted back, verse 13, crucify him. The chief priests had, I'm sorry, verse 11, the chief priests had stirred the multitude to ask for Barabbas. In other words, they actually put plants throughout the audience. So when, when Pilate's like, you're going to ask for Jesus, right? They're going around, no, ask for Barabbas. Now, when I first read that years ago, I'm like, that's insane. Are these people that barbaric that they would ask for a murderer instead of an innocent man? But we have to get some backdrop that Barabbas was probably a political hero. He didn't commit murder while he was robbing someone. He committed murder in what's called an insurrection. See, think about this. The Jews hated the Romans. They hated them occupying Judea. Everywhere they looked, there's a, there's a, a Roman soldier walking around, and, and the Romans were cruel. The soldiers could just tell you, carry my bag, and the Jews had to carry it legally for a mile. We're going to see that later when one of the soldiers grabs someone in the crowd. So they all wanted to get rid of the Romans, but some of the Romans were called zealots, and their idea was to go around and... and if you could get away with it, just stab a Roman, kill a Roman. And sometimes they'd have a revolt and they'd murder a few Romans. And so apparently Barabbas was involved in this, some sort of guerrilla scuffle, killed somebody in the insurrection and got arrested. So to the Jews, he's a hero. Here's a guy who, who liked the Maccabees when they freed us for Hanukkah. Here's a guy who, who stood up for his faith and killed somebody. So naturally, it wasn't hard for the the leaders to convince the people to ask for Barabbas. But they shouted back about Jesus, crucify him. And Pilate said, well, why? Verse 14, what has he done wrong? Now, again, there's, there's no reason or logic here. Ever notice this sometimes, that the more someone's wrong, the louder they speak? You can't reason with them. Oh, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Why? Crucify him. There's no, there's no, that doesn't even make sense. It's almost like they're, they're indwelled by the devil at this point. And this is so sad because right now Pilate's apparently in hell because he was more worried about what people thought than what God thought. Verse 15 says, wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. I want to take a minute to talk about flogging or scourging because as Christians, it's really important that, that we learn how to rehearse the gospel in our minds. We use a term around here, and we actually have a book now that we're, we're encouraging people to read called Gospel Fluency. If someone asks you, hey, are you fluent in Spanish? You know, do you know your way around? Or are, are you comfortable? Do you understand that language? Do, do these terms make any sense to you? So when we talk about gospel fluency, what, what we're, we're speaking of here is that as Christians, first of all, we should be rehearsing the gospel on a regular basis, like, like thinking specifically about the cross. One of the things that I thought about, first of all, was there are songs like this. Benjamin taught us a song not that long ago. I cast my mind on Calvary. What do you mean? 
I cast my mind. I'm thinking about the cross. Or, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's one line that goes like this. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. What do you mean, bring its scenes before me? Play, play that tape again. I, I want to I watch that again. Or a more familiar um, one we sing at communion. Jesus Christ, I think about your sacrifice. What do you mean, I think? I'm in that place once again. Once again, I think upon the cross where you died. Where did this idea come from? It came from Jesus. Jesus was the one not long ago in the gospel said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so part of gospel fluency is to frequently think about the sufferings of Christ and, and to bring that before you. And we're going to talk about why later, but just to, to rehearse that. So many of you know this, but for those of you that are kind of new to the scriptures, flogging or scourging was, was terribly cruel. It was so cruel that one of the emperors actually couldn't watch it. It just, it just too much to stomach. They would take a, a whip with leather cords and they would tie little pieces of glass or metal into it. They would, they would strap a man down to a, a, a piece of wood and then they would just whip that whip into his back and those little glass fragments would go into his back and then they would just drag it out of his back. And there was no limit to how many times you could do it. And sometimes people die just from the flogging. And imagine your back. Sometimes you could see people's organs. And if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, it's so brutal that I don't recommend children seeing it. And they probably overdo it. But it's worth just thinking about that Christ endured that for us, that by his stripes we're healed. And so as we think about the scourging, don't just read, oh, he scourged Jesus. And then he delivered him over to be crucified. And then it said the soldiers took him away into the palace. So before they're going to crucify him, they're going to taunt him. They're going to mercilessly shame him. So it says they took him into the palace, the praetorium. That would be the the, the Roman governor's elite. This, This is like the imperial guards. And they called together the whole cohort. Now that word spera in Greek could be 600 soldiers. That's this room only seats 500. Imagine, imagine all these people around Christ. And it says, and they dressed him up in purple. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed, spitting at him, and kneeling and bowing before him. I couldn't help but think about this. That's not the last time that they're going to kneel and bow before him, is it? Philippians chapter 2 says, one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be going to heaven. There will be many people who will bow in submission, and then the Bible says Jesus will say to them, depart from me. Depart from me into everlasting fire. Years ago, there was an oil commercial that had this grimy little, little mechanic, and he, and he would hold up a Pennzoil can, and he would talk about how important it is to change your oil. He'd say, you can pay me now, change your oil, or you can pay me later. And I kind of like that because I think that's a great illustration of the gospel. You can freely come to Jesus now 
and he'll pardon you and take you in as his child and bow your knee and say, Lord Jesus, I'll follow you. Or you can come later when every knee will bow. So who knows, maybe one of these four soldiers gave his life to Christ. And after they mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his garments on and led him out to crucify him. Isaiah 56, Isaiah 50, verse 6, the prophet said this, I offered my back, this is a messianic prophecy, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mocking and spitting. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. Now, what's cool about this is Cyrene is in northern Africa, so it's quite probable that Simon was a man of color, right? And he has just come in out of the field. I want to commend a song to you. If you've never heard the song by Ray Boltz, Watch the Lamb. Now, Ray Boltz himself has sadly departed from the Christian faith. But he wrote a song called Watch the Lamb, and it tells a story of a father bringing a lamb up to Jerusalem for the Passover. But in that song, they arrive in town, and he tells how there's this great scuffle, and everybody's run away, and and the children were watching the lamb. and, And then ultimately, they come to their father, and they say, Daddy, Daddy, we lost the lamb. And it's the father is actually Barabbas, who was forced to carry the cross. But as they plead with him, Daddy, we lost the lamb. He said, I'm going to tell you of Moses and Father Abraham. My children, watch the lamb. And so this whole engagement of Simon is just beautiful, particularly when he mentions here that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's not like Mark to name names, but we know from the book of Romans that Rufus was part of the church. And so it's quite likely that these Roman readers knew those two, Alexander and Rufus. And so they could, they could make a touch point, like, it was your dad that carried the cross? And then they brought Jesus to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. I used to have a Spanish student. He would call me Calvito. Does anybody know what that means? The, the Latin word for skull is calvus. So the Spanish word Calvito is a bald man, and I used to call her, I would say, yo soy un oso, and I would remind her the story of how Elisha, when they mocked him for his baldness, would come and send the she-bears, and the oso is a bear, and so I learned that this Calvary comes from that Latin word, this, this place, and when I was over there just a few weeks ago, they, they don't know for sure, but there's this ugly stone hill that looks like eye sockets in it, and it's, and it's just gruesome. But they take him to this shameful place. And then it says they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Now, it was common back then to give people wine when they were in pain. But myrrh is incredibly bitter, so it's almost as though they were tormenting him. They made it, made it so disgusting that he couldn't, couldn't drink it. But yet... They crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, that's, that's a quotation from Psalm 22, Jesus fulfilling another scripture. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. So it's now 9 o'clock in the morning. 
all right? And Jesus is going to hang on that cross, already so bloody he couldn't carry his own cross, so weak and beaten. The Bible says his visage was so marred that, that they couldn't even recognize him. And there he hangs on that cross at 9 o'clock. He said, Father, forgive them. And then it says they put an inscription above his head, the king of the Jews, and they crucified two robbers, one on the right and one on the left. And some manuscripts add, and, and the scripture was fulfilled, he was reckoned with transgressors. That's another quote from Isaiah 53, that Jesus, and what a shameful place, not only to be taken with these guys, but put in the center, like, like you're the centerpiece of wickedness. So Mark's really emphasizing the shame. They're spitting, they're mocking, they're, they're, they're stripping him, they're beating him, they're hanging him between thieves. And then we see this, this shame increased. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests and scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Let me remind you, if you're waiting to see until you believe, that is a bad gamble to take. Don't wait to see before you believe. My neighbor's like that. Young man I grew up with, born the, the day after me, known all my life. He says, I think I need Jesus Christ, but, but Tom, he said, the only way I'll come to him is if he gives me a clear sign. I said, Ken, Jesus said to doubting Thomas, because you see, do you believe? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. And so please, don't wait for a sign to put your trust in Christ. Don't wait for some vision of Jesus. Read the word of God. There was a man who went to hell in Luke 16, and, and he literally said to Abraham, please send someone back to my brother just to warn my brothers. They'll believe if they see someone rise from the dead. And Abraham said, they have Moses. If they don't believe the Bible... They won't believe even if somebody rises from the dead. And so I can imagine many people who have had a, a miracle from God be able to explain that away. Oh, it was probably just a circumstance. So don't wait for a sign to flee to Christ and put your faith in him. But verse 33 says, when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So at, so at, at noon, it gets dark. You know, I thought about the song Amazing Grace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun refused to shine. The Bible tells us when Christ returns, the sun will be darkened. But guess what? That won't be the first time the sun said, I'm not going out. There's a lot of debate as to why it became dark. Some have suggested that, as the songwriter said, the father turned his face away. It's not really said directly in the Bible, but somehow when, when the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus, the Bible says in Habakkuk chapter 1, God's eyes are too pure to even look on sin. And so when Christ bore the sins of the world on his shoulders so that we could be forgiven, the just for the unjust, somehow maybe this darkness is intended to, 
to show that God, in essence, he can't technically turn away from Christ. But from a physical standpoint, it felt to Jesus like he was forsaken. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jews at that day believed that Elijah, because he was taken up to heaven, would come and help their people in times of need. And so when they heard, Ali, Ali, they're thinking, oh, he must, have, he, must be, he must be calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, I don't want you to miss these last two verses because Mark throws in two really significant things. Okay, that's Mark's spin on the death of Christ. He says, I want you to know two things that happened. Number one, he says in verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament are familiar with the fact that God's holiness was 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 so intense that no one could go directly into the presence of God, but that there was a 10-foot-high, thickly woven veil with images of cherubim on the front, and only the high priest could go behind that veil. But don't miss this, because we're going to look at a passage in a moment in Hebrews. That veil was torn from 10 foot up down, and there was a symbol. God was the one that tore that to show us something, and we're going to come to that. But secondly, not only was the veil torn, but it says, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was a son of God. Don't forget, Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So he gives it to us right up front. But you're reading the, the book of Mark, and, and the demons go, you're the son of God. Jesus goes, be quiet. But the disciples go, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this? They can't grasp it. Throughout the whole gospel, they can't grasp that Jesus is the Son of God. But suddenly, a Roman centurion is able to identify. But what was it that caused him to go, truly, this was the Son of God? Look what it says. When he saw the way he breathed his last. Somebody once said a really interesting quote. You can tell a lot, of person, a lot about a person by the way he lives can also tell quite a bit by how they die. Jesus, simply watching how he died, the Spirit of God opened this man's eyes. He believed. Remember my pastor who led me to Christ many, many years ago. He witnessed to me, gave me a gospel. An elderly man, he had a heart attack. He was in the hospital. And, and, and he wrote, he couldn't even talk. He wrote a little note. And that note said, if the pain gets worse, just let me go be with Jesus. Tell my wife I love her. That was 40 years ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. And all of us right now, if, 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 if we're in good health, we're like, ah, I'm not afraid to die. But I want to encourage you to even pray about that. The book of John says that Peter, when he found out how he was going to die, the gospel says he found out by what death he would glorify God. You know, years ago, people used to pray about that. Lord, keep me on my dying hour. When death's cold flowing stream o'er me rolls, blessed Savior, then in love, my fear and distrust remove. Oh, lift me safely home, a ransomed soul. Pray that when you and I, pray ahead of time, if you and I hear that word cancer, 
if we hear that word death, that we might be able by faith to embrace it and to even be a testimony that we love the Lord and we trust the Lord. And so the centurion is moved to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And as I looked at this and I thought, okay, wow, Mark, you spun it in such a way that, that you're moving us to, to a number of things that I want us to think about. I want us to start with this. Like, have you ever thought about how awful people can be? I had the most traumatic experience of my life when I lived in Dallas, and I was playing tennis in the evening, and I heard, it was dark everywhere but the lit-up tennis court. It was in a park, and I heard what sounded like an animal that got hit by a car. It was wailing and screeching, and, and I looked through into the shadows, and I could see the shadows of men beating someone. There were three men. They were just beating and kicking this guy, and so so, so I ran at them with a tennis racket. I was terrified, but I ran at them with a tennis racket. And they pulled a gun on me, and they said, get back. And so I stepped back, and I turned, and I saw a police car coming, and I yelled to the policeman, and they saw the policeman, and they took off running. The policeman went right on by, but they were gone. Long story short, I got a call from the detective. The guy was... was Approached with a gun, he wouldn't give him his money, so they began to beat him. But I was, I was traumatized. For days, I was traumatized because I knew people were evil, but when you watch a television show and somebody gets punched in the face 50 times and he's standing there, he looks fine, right? When you see the wickedness of humanity, it's pretty depressing. So the first thing I want us to think about this is that men are wicked, but God is sovereign. Don't ever forget that. Men are wicked. That's, so why are we surprised? But God is sovereign. God takes terrible things and turns them into beautiful things. Joseph understood this early on when his brothers did everything they could to make his life miserable. He said, you meant it for evil. Men are wicked. But God meant it for good. He said, well, why are you doing this here, Tom? Because Acts chapter 2 you see, the apostles understood this. When Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, the same Peter who denied Christ, my wife reminded me, don't forget to tell him, Tom, that once Peter got filled with the Spirit, he wasn't denying Christ. Remember, Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. When Peter preached his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, he stood up and he said, listen, you Jews, you killed Jesus. But Acts 2.23 says this. says, you delivered him up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God wasn't going, what are they doing to my son? Men are wicked, but God is sovereign. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, but somehow God was using that for our salvation. The Bible says God can even use the wrath of man to praise him. Let that encourage you. People are wicked. And they may have done some horrible things to you, horrible things to others, but God is sovereign and somehow don't think that God has forgotten us or he's forsaken us when bad things happen. But there's a second thing that really struck me here and that was we're told to remember the death of Christ often. And I thought about Barabbas and this great exchange. Can you imagine Barabbas? As, as, they, as the guards come into his cell, and he's just waiting to be crucified, and he's figuring, all right, I'm going to fight. And they go, get up. 
They go, you're, you're free. What? You're free. Just go. What, what do you mean I'm free? Just get. And as he walks out, he probably hears the crowd. He looks over and he sees Jesus on the cross. He doesn't know who he is. He says, who is that guy? He goes, I don't know. He's up there for me. Is that how you view Jesus? That's how I view him. I do know that he's up there for me. Isn't that precious? To think often about the great exchange. And as you, as you grow in your faith, teach these things to your kids and keep rehearsing them. Learn scripture verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Recite to yourself, he was delivered up the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. What a precious thing to think about the cross and to know that I'm completely forgiven. But what I want to do in these last couple minutes, I couldn't help but think about this. What struck me in this whole ordeal was this, that Jesus is, is called by Mark the Son of God. And I was thinking about Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to turn there with me because I couldn't help but say, wow, look at this connection. Because while the Gospels often talk about the sufferings of Christ, rarely do the New Testament writers talk about the shame of Christ. It's not just that he was being beaten. He was totally humiliated in every way. How, do you, how would you feel when someone spit on you, right? As he hung there naked with his little loincloth. But I remembered Hebrews chapter 12, and this, this connected in my mind. When it talks about the death of Christ, It tells us in verse 2 that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, the word fix there is, a, is an unusual word for, for look. It literally means look away from some things in order to see something else. So look away from, from what you're going through and fix your eyes on Christ. And what am I to look at? He says, think about this. He endured the cross. But then the next phrase, despising the shame. That struck me. It's one of the only places where it talks about shame. What do you mean despising the shame? What does that mean? So I looked up that word in Greek. And it literally means to think of something as not important enough to even be concerned about it. Give it no care. Don't, don't even be afraid of it. As he was hanging on the cross, and they were mocking him and cursing him and wagging their heads at him and saying, you can't save anybody. The Bible says he didn't even give a concern to that. Why? Well, look what it says. For the joy set before him. Because right now he's seated in heaven. And he saw that you were going to be his child. And he thought about me as I hung on that cross. And he was able to think nothing of what he was going through. Because one day you and I will be in his presence on account of that for the joy set before him. And so the author of Hebrews, it really struck me. Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the son of God. That's what Mark is saying. Jesus despised the shame. That's what Mark is saying. But ultimately, why? 
so that you and I could learn from this a very important lesson of walking with God. You see, the author of Hebrews took these same ideas. In chapter 10, he said this. He said, since we have access to God now through Jesus, not through a veil, but through the veil of his own flesh, let us draw near to Jesus. Let's not forsake gathering with other Christians, and let's stimulate one another with love and good deeds. And so as you go home this week, I want you to turn to Hebrews 13 as we close. Because I couldn't help but think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, despised the shame that we could have access and confess his name. Say that with me. Jesus, the Son of God, Thank you both. Let's try that again. Jesus, the Son of God, despised the shame so we could have access to confess his name. Now, what does that mean to confess his name? We'll go over to chapter 13. Because when the author of Hebrews was writing, he was writing to another group of people who were kind of going, oh, I don't want to look like a moron. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't know whether I want to tell people I'm a Christian. And so he reminds them in 13, 12, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. Look what he says here. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. You know what that means? It means make your cut with this world. Stop trying to be loved by everybody. Stop worrying about what people think about you. Start deciding, I have decided to follow Jesus. Though no one join me, still I will follow. Let us go outside the camp and suffer with him. But then he says something really cool. He says in verse 14, we don't have a lasting city here. We're seeking the city which is to come. And here it is, verse 15. Through him then... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And he go, yeah, that's why I love to come to church and sing. I love to do that. <clears throat> that's not at all what he means here. He's not talking about singing here. Because look what he says. You want to offer something pleasing to God? Look what he says. He says, here's what we do. It's the fruit of lips. Now, the New American Standard, and I don't know why they translate this way, but literally, literally, it says it's the fruit of lips that confess his name. Every day that you and I publicly identify with Christ, that we let people know, yeah, I'm a born-again Christian. I believe Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is coming again. Every day when we allow ourselves to be identified with Christ, we're offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. You can come here and sing in front of Christians, but what do you say in front of pagans? The Bible says, let's identify with Christ. And so, as you close this morning, we ought to become more gospel fluent. Mark showed us that Jesus is the Son of God. He despised the shame. He brought me access to God to confess his name. So as you embrace the gospel, number one, I want to encourage you to believe it. Believe it. As I sat with my dear friend yesterday, the, the young man, he says to me, well, well he goes, I don't think I'll go right to heaven. I still have to go to purgatory. I'm not pure enough. I said, what? When Jesus hung on that cross, he said, it is finished. 
You don't pay anything. And I want to encourage you to believe that. Believe with all your heart that the Lamb of God took away all your sins. And you can trust in that. Lash your soul and body and mind and heart to the cross. Just say, I believe it. I believe with all my heart that Jesus died and rose again. And embrace that. If you believe that, you're forgiven. There's no condemnation. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Believe that because Satan will beat you all day long with guilt and shame and condemnation. And we as Christians are called to believe the gospel. Believe it in your darkest moment when, 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 when you're going, I don't know, up from down. I don't know where God is. Believe it. Trust in Jesus. He'll never forsake you. But secondly, I want to encourage you not just to believe it, but to boldly confess it and share it. It was beautiful on Wednesday night. Several people stood up and just said, hey, and, and they boldly identified with Christ. And I want to encourage you, if you're on the fence, get on the other side. Run to Jesus by faith this morning and begin to tell people, live your life for him. So we're going to believe it. We're going to boldly share it. But, but lastly, let's behave in light of it. Behave in light of it. There are so many people in America, oh, I am a Christian. Well, they don't live that way. What does it mean to behave in light of it? I don't try to do right. I don't want to love people. I don't want to turn away from sin because I'm hoping God's going to let me into heaven. But we do that because we're already in. You see, when we live in light of it, when we behave in light of it, what we're really saying to Jesus is, here's my thank you note, Lord. Here's my appreciation. You know, so many people, they go, you mean to tell me all I have to do is believe in Jesus and I'm completely forgiven? And I go, I didn't tell you that. God did. The Bible says the gift of God is everlasting life. But whenever I hear somebody say, well, then I could just go do what I want. No, you don't get it. The grace of God calls for us to live holy, to live worthy. But it's out of gratitude, not out of fear. So maybe some of you need to make some changes this morning and say, I say I know Jesus, but I do this, this, and this. That dishonors him. The songwriter said, it was my sin that put him there until it was accomplished. Do I want to drive another nail? As, as we close today, I want to encourage you, the Son of God despised the shame, brought us access to confess his name. Let's believe it. Let's boldly share it. And let's behave that way. Amen? Father, thank you for the word of God. It is such a privilege to, to just learn about Jesus again, to study what he did for us. Thank you for your word. Lord, may this church become a refuge, a hospital, where we sinners can gather and love the Lord and worship him and believe on him and be changed by him. As you send out your people this week, may we be greatly encouraged that we are forgiven. Lord Jesus, we'll never be able to thank you or praise you enough for what you did for us. We love you and we pray that the Holy Spirit will fill us. And as we go out this week, in actions and in words, we'll boldly share the message of salvation. Lord, we look forward to that day when we see you and we fall down and we sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Please, Lord, open people's eyes. Maybe there's some this morning 
who boldly want to confess that they're a Christian. May you call more people to yourself and may we see men and women, boys and girls, becoming followers of Christ by the Holy Spirit's sovereign grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a favor. If you became a Christian recently, you should have come tell me that. Some of you were standing up and there might have been some other words. It's such a joy for us to hear of how people have committed their lives to Christ. So tell me or tell somebody or send us an email. We want to pray for you. Have a great day.